0: Well, good morning. There have been a number of books in my life that have uh, marked me in some irreparable way, and this is one of them. Uh, the book is entitled Spiritual Leadership. The author of the book is Dr. J. Oswald Sanders. Uh, I understand, only because I ask him, that the book now, uh, there, there are something like 350,000 of these books in print. They're printed in a number of languages. This book has gone all around the world ministering to pastors and missionaries and uh, people in places of great need. Dr. Sanders is here this morning. He's here with us this week because we have an Idaho Mountain Ministry Conference coming up. Uh, As you know, we each year sponsor a conference for rural and backcountry pastors and their wives and other Christian leaders in these churches. And uh, it's our privilege each year to bring someone who will come and minister uh, to them. These are people who often uh, uh, are, have a great deal of uh, pressure on them, very difficult circumstances. Some of these communities are not only uh, not only is the environment, the physical environment, harsh, but the spiritual environment is very harsh as well, a lot of uh, hostility to the gospel. They're very difficult places to minister. Uh, these pastors and their wives are often misunderstood and overworked and underpaid and overcriticized and underappreciated, and it's always our delight to bring someone to them to minister uh, to their needs and uh, that's why Dr. Sanders is here uh, this this year. Dr. Sanders is uh, eighty nine years old. He is living proof of Augustine's axiom that, that we are immortal till our work is done. Uh, he's still uh, as sturdy and strong, I think, as he uh, ever has been, and uh, uh, just uh, raring to go. An exciting person to be with. Now, uh, with him is uh, Dr. Alex Smith, who is the Northwest Director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And I'm going to ask Alex to come up and say a further word about uh, Dr. Sanders and introduce him to us.
1: Well, it's a real pleasure for us to be here this morning. You have two Southern Baptists with you. Uh, both Mr. Sanders and myself come from the South. Mr. Sanders was born in the southernmost city in the world, in Invercargill, and we both happen to be Baptists, so I guess that qualifies us. But it's really great to be here. When I first heard of this church, it was introduced to me as the Cold Community Church. Someone corrected me and told me it was the coal communication. I said, oh, they've turned from coal from hot to coal, C-O-A-L. And then I found out the real spelling of the word. But we're so glad to be here this morning and to share with you. It's always a privilege to introduce Mr. Sanders. Uh, his heart burns with a love for God, a love for the word of God, and especially a burden for that part of the world that he's been involved in, Asia, where two-thirds of the world's population is less than 5% of the world's Christians. There, with the China Inland Mission, he first began to be involved back when he was only 23 years of age. And for the last 66 years, he's continued that fellowship with that mission started by Hudson Taylor, the China Inland Mission, which today we call the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. He was trained as a lawyer originally, and then uh, became involved with the uh, starting of the New Zealand Bible Training Institute then, for 20 years he served as a principal and one of their major teachers in that area. Then he was called to be the Home Director in Australia for our mission, followed by a call to a very strategic responsibility as the General Director when uh, the mission was just being forced out of China when the Communists took over and way over a thousand missionaries had to be uh, redistributed. And uh, there are some marvelous miracles of God's power and grace and faithfulness in that but it was at that strategic time that Mr. Sanders came to the helm of our mission to redirect, to give guidance from the wisdom of the Lord as to how we might approach, and that's why we scattered out to other parts of Asia today and are still serving there with our eleven hundred missionaries. But Mr. Sanders' heart has burned with the passion for souls, a passion for lost peoples everywhere, and especially for a passion for the Word of God and the use of of that word, to stir the church to their major responsibility to glorify Christ throughout a whole earth, through every nation, people, tongue, and tribe. And we're so glad to have Mr. Sands with us this morning, especially because as he comes to us, he comes and he always leaves books behind. Uh, he has written over 40 books, and he has three books coming out this month, one next month, one December, another one, so you've got your Christmas presents already lined up. And your bookstore has his books. Please buy them and read them. Share them. Because they are a wealth of stimulation in the spiritual realm and of blessing to your soul as well as vision for the world round about you. Mr. Sanders comes. We pray that he will be used by the Holy Spirit as he usually is and always is because he is a humble man who looks to the Lord. His best qualification. He is a sinner like I am and I trust all of you are saved by the grace of our lord jesus christ thank you
2: good morning it is a joy to me to be with you here this is my first visit to boise i didn't know there was such a place but but my education has been now completed <laughs> But it's always a joy to be able to share the Word of God with God's people who love Him and love His Word. This morning I want to speak about the God of the new opportunity. I think you'll agree with me that these days are not very encouraging. There is a We move from crisis to crisis. And none of the politicians or the potentates seem to be able to solve any of these crises. All they do is to push them a bit further back until they become bigger and bigger. And we go from crisis to crisis. And uh, the social fabric of our society is very rapidly crumbling. And the prospect from a worldly point of view is not very optimistic. But it's good for us to have a message of encouragement and optimism. Where would you go for it? You wouldn't go to the newspaper. You would go to the Bible. And which book of the Bible would you go to? If you wanted to get a message of encouragement, Which book of the Bible would you go to? I think probably one of the last we'd go to would be the book written by the weeping prophet. We've got enough tears of our own without having a weeping prophet. But we go to Jeremiah chapter 18. And if you'll read that with me, you will find the message of encouragement. Jeremiah chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted and torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted and it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. The message of this passage is that God delights to give another opportunity to people who have failed. And that's good news, isn't it? I wonder who of us would say that they had never failed. I wonder which of us would say that we are completely satisfied with the level of attainment we have reached in our Christian life you think we have reached the limit? I think every one of us has a sense that there is a long way still for us to go and this message comes to us and assures us that God is a God who delights to give a new opportunity and that no failure no matter how deep it is need be final The potter's art today is very much the same as it was in Jeremiah's day. There's not very much different. Uh, The machinery is more sophisticated, but the same essentials are there. Jeremiah had been pleading with the nation to turn to God. He'd wept over them. And yet despite all his tears and entreaties, the nation had proved intransigent and they were slipping further and further away from God. And he could see no alternative but judgment. And then just at that stage, God gave him this vision of hope. Now it was a contemporary message to Israel, but it has a contemporary application to every one of us, because it was a parable enacted before the eyes of Jeremiah. When he went into the potter's house, what did he see? First of all, he would see the revolving wheel on which the vessel was to be shaped. And in those days, the wheel was controlled by a treadle And uh, the potter, with his foot, would uh, make the treadle go faster or slower according to the speed he wanted the wheel to rotate. And then he would see a a lump of clay or a a pile of clay that the potter was going to use to make the vessel. He would see a jar of water that he would use to soften the clay so that it would become plastic and malleable in his hand. Then he would see a scrap heap where the vessels that had refused to respond to the potter's touch had been cast aside. And then, of course, he would see the potter, that skillful man who knew how to make vessels of beauty and vessels of honor. You may have noticed in our reading that the Lord said this. He said, can I not do with you as this potter does? Says the Lord, like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand. I don't know about you, but I find that rather harsh, don't you? You see, the the potter can do anything he likes with the clay. He can make it any shape he likes. He can make it ugly, or he can make it beautiful. And the Lord says, "I I can do that too. I, I've got I've got absolutely control absolute control over you. I can do with your life exactly what the potter does with the clay." I used to rather resent the. Doctrine of the sovereignty of God because I like to have a hand in the molding of my life. I didn't like to think that it was all in God's hand, but uh, the older I get, the more I rejoice in the fact that we have a sovereign God who is absolutely in control of all the things in the world. In these days, when you never know what's going to happen next, there's a verse... In Acts chapter 17 and verse 16, when Paul was speaking, and he said, this is the New English Bible rendering, he said, he fixed the epochs of their history. He determined the bounds of their habitation. You see, our politicians and our, our military people think that they are the ones who determine history, but Paul says, nothing, doing. God is the one who fixes the epochs of history. They have their conferences to determine national boundaries, I think. But Paul says, no, no. God is the one who does that. He fixed, and I think in the NIV it says, He fixed the exact places where they should live. Did you ever know that? God fixed the exact places where you live. That's what Paul says. Here is a God who is absolutely sovereign and he can do what he likes with us. But the prophet Isaiah softens the picture somewhat. And in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8, it says, And now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. And so there in that... One verse, he brings together the two wonderful things about God. He is a sovereign God who can do anything he likes, but he is also a loving Father. And God's sovereignty will never clash with his paternity. He will never do anything in our lives or allow anything to happen in our lives that in the long run will not prove to be in our highest interests. It's hard for us to accept that sometimes when we're going through a bad time. But you see, our, our viewpoint is so, so uh, limited. We are only thinking of now. God has the eternity in view. And when we get to see it from His perspective, God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. Jeremiah saw the potter take a lump of the clay, set the wheel in motion, and then he throws the lump of clay right into the center of the wheel. It's important that he puts it in the center, otherwise it would become eccentric. An eccentric person is a person who's Uh, (laughs) off-center. And we can be spiritual eccentrics if we get out of the center of the will of God. Are you in the center of the will of God? What happens if the potter puts it to the side? Well, it will come become lopsided. It will never be symmetrical and beautiful. And so with our lives, if we take the potter's place and we start to shape our lives, we will be eccentric spiritually, we'll be off-center. What what does does the wheel stand for? I think the wheel stands for the circumstances of life that shape our character. There are so many circumstances that uh, shape our lives, aren't there? Uh, We didn't have much to say about our heredity. You didn't choose your parents, did you? Nor did I. We didn't have much to say about our environment. We We weren't asked where we wanted to be born. We think of our education. In the early stages, we didn't have much say about our education. And so in many of the things that Uh, concern our lives we have no control. God sends adversity or prosperity. He sends sorrow and he sends joy and all these things are molding our characters. The wheel is going around but I love to think that the treadle on the treadle that controls the revolving of the wheel there is a foot with a nail print in it. It is the Lord who died on the cross who controls all the circumstances of life. The poet Browning put it this way, He fixed thee mid this dance of plastic circumstance, machinery just meant to give thy soul its bent. Try thee. And turn thee forth sufficiently impressed. And so the wheel stands for the ordinary daily round of life, the things joyous and sad, wonderful and not so wonderful uh, that make go to make up our character. What is the clay? Job said. That you have made me as the clay. The clay stands for our, ourselves, our personality. Because we are clay very literally. Uh, our bodies are of the same constituent elements as the clay. But the one thing about clay is that it has the power to receive and to retain the touch of the potter. And to reproduce the pattern which is in the potter's mind. Now the Bible tells us very clearly what pattern is in the God's mind when He's moulding our lives. And what is the pattern? Romans eight twenty nine. You remember Romans eight twenty eight, but very few people remember eight twenty nine. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we usually stop there. But what is the good that is spoken of there? It's in verse 29. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's for good. Anything that will make me more like Christ is good, whether it seems bad at the time or not. And so, God, in molding our lives, is trying to make us every day a little more like Christ. When are you happiest in your Christian life? I'll tell you. When you're most like Christ. True? When are you most miserable? When you're most like yourself. Isn't it true? And yet God all the time is trying to make us like his son. So the clay stands for ourselves. And the potter is taking the clay and shaping it uh, to that pattern. Every touch that he brings into our lives has got that, that in view. And even the 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 things we dread most in the long run are going to make us a little more like Christ. So he's made the he's making the vessel and you see it forming you see it gradually being a thing of beauty he shapes it on the outside and then he shapes it on the inside and It's going to be something very beautiful. And then all of a sudden it collapses. Something has happened. The passage says the vessel was marred, was spoiled in the hand of the potter. But that last statement is very important. He expected, I have no doubt, that the potter when he found that the clay didn't respond to his touch he'd throw it on the scrap heap there was the scrap heap where other vessels had been thrown and he thought that he would just throw it aside and then take another piece of clay and soften it and so one that would respond to him but the verse, the verse says it was marred in the hand of the potter And the potter didn't allow allow it to go out of his hand. He made it again another vessel. And isn't it comforting that when we are God's children, we can't get out of his hand. He's not going to let us go. And he'll he'll take us, and if we will yield to his touch, he'll make us again another vessel as seemed good to him. God is a very skillful potter. He's been working at it for many years, and he knows how to make vessels unto honor. What was it marred the vessel? We're not told. But I know what mars the vessel of our lives. If we tolerate sin in our lives, that will mar the vessel. If we hold on to sin that the Holy Spirit has convicted us of time and again, that means that the vessel is not going to respond to the potter's touch. It may be some wrong relationship that we've entered into that is marring the hand of the potter. Well, there's one thing to do you break it off. You have done with the sin. There are various ways in which we can spoil the work of the potter. We can resist the known will of God. God wants us to do something. And we say, no, Lord. We don't put it in those words, but we just refuse to obey. And that spoils the vessel in the hand of the potter. Any sin will mean that our lives will not, reach that degree of likeness to Christ that God has for us. And so we need to be very honest in dealing with anything the Spirit of God shows us in our lives. Then the third process, he saw the the potter take the vessel and the lump of clay, he probably softened it with water, And then he started again, and it says he made it again another vessel. He didn't throw it aside. He doesn't throw your you aside because you failed. He can't use you and make you a vessel of beauty and unto honor until you put that thing right. But the moment you put right, get right with God, He'll take that life of yours in spite of the past failure, no matter how bad it's been, and he'll make you again another vessel. Some people say that uh, uh, once you've failed, you, you only get God's second best in the future. But this passage doesn't say that. What does it say? He made it again another vessel as seemed best. To the potter it doesn't say, as seemed good to the potter. God is a, our God is a wonderful God, there's no God like Him, and He doesn't deal in second bests. Believe that God can take that life of yours and make you over again so that you could be useful in His service to a degree you never have been before. And I've got scriptural background for saying that. You take Jacob, for example. Jacob was the most unlovely character in the Bible. His name means crooked, the traducer, Jacob the traducer, the cheat, the deceiver. Well, uh, if you're going to choose somebody to be the progenitor of the nation which you are going to use to bring salvation to the world and through which uh, you, God was going to send his son? Would you have chosen Jacob? He would be the last character you'd choose. He was a middle-aged man when he deceived his father and when he cheated his brother for his birthright. He spent 20 years cheating his uncle and being cheated by his uncle. But at last, God got him alone. And he made him face up to his true character. He asked Jacob, Jacob, what is your name? And you know, the name stands for the character. And I think that Jacob would look down. And he said, My name is Jacob the crook. And when God heard that confession of his sin and of his failure, what did God do? What did he do with the crook? He said, From now on, your name is no longer Jacob. From now on, your name is Israel. A prince having power with God and with man. Who said the bird with the broken pinion never soared as high again? And God made Jacob the head of the nation of Israel through whom the Christ came for our salvation. You take Simon Peter, that volanti- volatile character. He, he, he was unstable and always saying the wrong thing. And he boasted, though all men forsake you, yet I'll never forsake you, said Peter. And yet you know what happened. You know how in the judgment hall he denied the Lord with oaths and curses. I never knew the man. And the record says, and he went out and wept bitterly he realized that he spoiled everything. If you could get into his mind, I think he'd be thinking along these lines, well, it was very lovely while it lasted, but I've blown it, I've spoiled it, and now I'm off the apostolate, and I might just as well go back fishing. What did God do with him? Did he cast him on the scrap heap? In 50 days' time, denying Peter was preaching the Pentecostal sermon that ushered 3,000 people into the kingdom of God. The Lord entrusted him with the keys of the kingdom, which he used on the day of Pentecost to open the door to the church to the Jews. And later in the house of Cornelius he used the keys to admit the Gentiles into the church. How wonderfully God treats us, us sinful men, us failing men and women. He gave him a new opportunity. And you know, he not only allowed him to come back onto the apostolate, he made him the leader, the man who had failed so badly. Abysmally, he made him the leader of the apostolic band. So don't get discouraged if you feel you've made a failure in your life or in your marriage or anywhere else. God can make you over again as he did with him. There are young people here. Young people can fail. Young people can spoil their lives. And there was a young man named John Mark. And he went with his uncle Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary journey. You can imagine the excitement of that young man. He'd never been away from home and now he's going into other, other parts of the world and he's with two great men and he's very excited. And uh, all goes well until the going got a bit rough and the terrain was pretty difficult and uh, there were hardships and there was opposition and uh, there was danger and at last John Mark could take no more so he turned tail and went home to mother. That's the end of John Mark, is it? John Mark, the dropout, what happened to him? When Paul and Barnabas were talking about their next trip, Barnabas said, "We'll, we'll take John Mark with us." <laughs> Paul says, "Nothing doing. He let us down once. No second chance for John Mark." But fortunately, Barnabas uh, he didn't he, he 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 took him with him. the The dispute between them became, became so severe that they separated company. But Paul was a big man, a generous man, and you find him later in one of his letters saying, Bring Mark with you because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Yes, he 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 found that God hadn't laid Mark aside because he'd become a temporary dropout. And what did God do with Mark? He made him the biographer of his son. And he wrote the second gospel. What a wonderful thing God does. Even a, a young person who drops out and makes a failure, they can start again. The Lord will make take that life of yours and make it a vessel as seemed best to him. Something... That is really worthwhile. But there was a fourth process. The first one was when the vessel was shaped. The second one was when the vessel was marred. The third process was when the vessel was reshaped. But now the fourth fourth process is the vessel perfected. The vessel made permanent. If the potter had left the soft clay vessel just as it was, it would soon have lost its shape. It wouldn't wouldn't be permanent. And so the clay vessel has to go through the fire in order that the unwanted, the unworthy elements are burnt out and the pattern is burned in. And the potter often paints on the On the vessel, beautiful flowers or something else. And when the fire has done its work, that pattern is burned in and the vessel emerges with all its beauty and with all its shine. I was going through a friend's pottery on one occasion. And we came to the place where the vessels were being burned in order to be made permanent. And he said to me, we never put a vessel into the fire unshielded. If we put the vessel as it has been made uh, into the fire without a covering, the flames would be too severe and they would spoil it. So we put it into a fire-resisting, encase it in a fire-resisting material, and when it goes into the fire that outer casing takes the fierceness of the flames and only allows enough heat to go through to do what we want with it. And so he said, every piece that we put into the fire is encased in something that is stronger and can take the flame. And when he said that, my mind went to a verse in Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 43 and verse 2. This is what it says. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. I will be with you. Are you going through a fiery experience? Are you going through the fire? Are you afraid the flames will kindle on you? The Lord says, I will not allow you to go into that alone. I am with you. The Bible says, in all their afflictions, he is afflicted. Our Lord identifies himself with you in your need. He says, I'll be with you. The flames are there, but they won't set you ablaze. And of course... The best illustration of that is the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace. What an experience. They had boasted in God. They had said to the king, Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But he didn't. They were thrown into the fire. You know, that must have been a, a bit of a shock to them. But you see, I didn't quote all they said. They had a third resource to their faith. They said, our God is able to deliver us and He will deliver us. But they added, but even if He doesn't, we still will not bow down to your your image. We know that God will be faithful to us. He's got some other solution to it. And so they experienced being thrown into the fire heated seven times hotter but they had an amazing experience when they were thrown into the fire the men who threw them in threw them in were incinerated but God so controlled the the flames that all they did was to burn the cords that bound them not a hair was singed not a smell of burning on their clothes. What did that verse say? The blaze, the fire will not set you ablaze. And they weren't set ablaze, and they found themselves walking free. Their bondage was gone. And all of a sudden, they see a fourth person walking with them. And who is it? One like unto a son of God. And here was the Lord himself walking with them in the midst of the flames. And they had fellowship with the Son of God. Next morning, the three fellows would be having their breakfast. They didn't expect to have their breakfast when they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace, but they were having their breakfast. wheat picks. I don't know whether they had that then, but it would be something like that. And coffee, they may have had coffee. But while they were having their breakfast, can you imagine Shadrach turning to Meshach and saying, Meshach, aren't you glad God didn't spare us the experience of being thrown into the fiery furnace? If he had spared us that experience, we would never have had the privilege of walking in fellowship with the Son of God. You know, my brothers and sisters, God does allow us to go through the burning, fiery furnace. He doesn't always deliver us from it. Sometimes He does, sometimes He doesn't. In His sovereignty, He does that which He sees is best in our interests in the long run. But He is with us in the fire. And it is those dark experiences when we are clinging to the Lord and trusting Him that we get to know Him in an in intimacy and in a way in which we can know Him no otherwise. What, those of, those of you who are older have been through the fires, you know that's true, don't you? But only if we respond to His touch. There's a very solemn side to this story too. You remember Judas. The Lord was very, very gentle with Judas. He gave him numerous opportunities of repenting, repenting. And even at the very last moment, when Judas was about to betray Jesus, Jesus said, Friend. And the word he used there in speaking to Judas was intimate friend. Judas, you're still my intimate friend. It's not too late, even at this hour, if you repent. I'll make your life over again. But Judas didn't respond to the touch of the potter. And how did it end? Do you think it was a coincidence that Judas was buried in the potter's field, which had been purchased with the 30 pieces of silver for which Judas had sold Jesus. I think that that is put in the Bible to warn us not to resist the touch of the potter, but to yield to him. Judas had a chance right to the very end, but he wouldn't take it. And so... Here is a picture of the wonder of our God who delights to give a new opportunity. When King George VI of England was visiting a pottery in England, the potter took him into a room where they had been uh, their afternoon tea sets were displayed that they were making. And he directed his majesty to one table, and he said, there is the tea set that you ordered for the palace. But when the king looked, it was a black tea set. But he said, we never ordered a black tea set for the palace. Oh, no, your majesty, you ordered a gold tea set. But he said, under the black is the gold. But if we were to put the gold into the fire the fierceness of the flames would would spoil it and so we cover it with the black material and when that has burned off all that is left is the burnished gold of the tea set you ordered when we are going through the fiery experience we see the black And how black it is sometimes, isn't it? You wonder if it'll ever end. You wonder if there's any solution to it. But the wonderful thing is that under the black is the gold. What is God working toward? He's working to produce the gold of approved character. And uh, when we're going through the experience, we don't always realize what, what God is doing. And in Job, in chapter 23, he says, When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. There is the, the, the uh, way in which God, was, God is working. He wants us to be men and women of quality, men and women of character, whom he can depend on to get the gospel out into the ends of the earth. Because really, that should be our main preoccupation. The last five words on our Lord's lips before He ascended into heaven were to the uttermost part of the earth. That was the last thing on His heart. And it ought to be the first thing on our hearts. When I am tested, when He has tested me, I will come forth as gold, the gold of approved Christ-like character. Remember, every touch of the potter has this end in view to make us a little more like Christ. Shall we not then lie still and let him mold thee? O Lord, I would obey. Be thou the sovereign potter and I the yielding clay. Will we place ourselves in the Lord's hand and say, Lord, forgive me that I have so often misunderstood and resisted your touch. But from today on, I want to Yield to your touch so that you can take this very ordinary life of mine and make it over again and make me more like your son.